The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. might think of where we are in this gospel as the progression that occurs in a, a display of fireworks that you see this time of year. You always know that the fireworks display is probably nearing an end as they come more frequently and bigger. Well, that's a little bit of what we have here. As we've talked about Luke as the gospel of astonishment or amazement. Luke has showed us so many ways in which Jesus has amazed people, and it's almost like the fireworks get bigger every episode. This, certainly, you will agree, is one of those crowning episodes of astonishment and amazement in how we behold Jesus Christ. I begin at verse 28 of Luke 9. I'm going to read a little farther than I indicated through verse 43. Listen to God's holy word. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up unto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my Son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and told no one at that time what they had seen. The next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he's my only child. A spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions, so he foams at the mouth, and it scarcely ever leaves him. It is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion, but Jesus rebuked the evil spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. This is God's holy word. 
People might climb mountains for many reasons, but certainly a dominating goal is to simply see the world from exhilarating heights. Possibly in your summer travels, you'll be somewhere in the United States where you can look out on a pleasant vista from a high place. Those are places where we like to linger. No photograph that we ever take from those places quite captures what is going on in our minds and our thoughts as we gaze far and drink in the beauty. Stacy Allison, the first American woman who ever climbed Mount Everest, wrote this. We came to the end of the ridge which looked like the end of the world. Nothing was left before us but clear mountain air. I stood atop the planet. Our problems don't seem to loom quite as large when we turn away from the peak of a high place and walk back to the valleys where God has appointed for us to live, humbled but encouraged. Well, today in this event we call the Mount of Transfiguration, we have another great reason to speak about Luke as the gospel of astonishment. Immediately, remember last time Peter had given this epic confession of who Jesus was. It's so important that we understand the, the real turning point that came when Peter was the first to say, you are the Christ of God. And then Jesus immediately responded by revealing that the cross was the way for the Christ, the Messiah, to go, not the way of triumph that everyone had expected. And this certainly stirred up fear and confusion in the disciples. They needed reassurance. They didn't understand. So he took them apart, prayed with them in this high place. We know not the name of the mountain where they were, but somewhere there in Galilee. And as he took them there, he revealed to them something that was a stunning blast of encouragement, unlike anything human eyes have ever witnessed before or probably since. True disciples, you see, need to grasp both the dimension of suffering of Jesus and of his glory. We're very prone not to hold those two things together. We're usually concentrating on one or the other. And he wanted the disciples to have this much of the complete picture. They had heard of his cross. It dismayed them. So he wanted them to see his glory, to encourage them. He did something here that I would liken to letting them and by their witness, the rest of us, peer into the hidden court of heaven and understand in a visual way a little bit of what Christ was before he came into this world and what he is today as he rules as the king of heaven. And our faith must do what he was intending to be done for these disciples. Simultaneously understand his wretched death for sinners, the descent of that to the depths, but at the same time know him as the one and only, the only begotten, the Bible calls him, glorified on the heights. So first today I'd ask you to see in our text how it shows us Christ's essential glory revealed As Jesus was praying, the appearance of his face changed. His clothes became as bright as a flash 
of lightning. It's easy to understand why the gospel writer would, would think of lightning. That was the brightest thing that they would ever see, the brightest intensity of light in the world before electricity. We are so used to our cities being lit up that you can fly in an airplane and tell when you're approaching a major city as you see all the lights going out in all directions. But this was a time when it was dark, and a lightning flash was certainly a wondrous thing for people to behold in that time. Well, you need to be sure of this. This is an eyewitness account given very straightforwardly. It came to the ear of Luke who reported it, scientist that he was. I'm sure he knew people would probably try to discredit this or say, well, those disciples were sleepy. It was just a dream. It was just a mass hallucination. It was some kind of a myth that they made up. But the text reports it as history, reports it as a straightforward fact something that happened, and that multiple evidences reported the same way. Now, this isn't the last time that these disciples would be asleep when Jesus was praying. You can think of another notable occasion of that, I'm sure. What was it that woke them? Was it possibly the change in the light? My alarm went off this morning about 5.20 a.m. It always does on Sunday, and I always allow myself to awaken gradually on Sunday. I even lay there and pray for a little while, and sometimes I'm just saying, Lord, help me put my feet outside the bed. But at 5.20, the room was not light. And as I lay there for 15 minutes or so, by closer to a quarter of six as I got up, it was beginning to be light. Somehow our our bodies, even with our eyes closed when we're sleeping, we sense as, as light changes in a room and we respond. Maybe that's what it was. I can't say, but There was Jesus in the same place that he had been, and yet as they looked at him, it wasn't the same Jesus. He was transformed. From his face and his clothing, there was now this translucent brightness that they knew not how to describe, a wonderful radiance permeating him so that even his clothing was dazzling white. Now, we've all seen the artworks of the Middle Ages when they always put a halo, you know, around Jesus' head or the painting showed beams sort of going out in all directions. And, and of course, no one ever thought Jesus walked around and looked like that all the time. But the artists were interpreting. They were trying to tell you that here was the light of the world. Here was the one who was glorious in every way. We know that that was not in his natural physical appearance that he was glorious, My family and I were down in the Outer Banks in early July, and we went over to Roanoke Island where they have a historical recreation of some early settlement, one of these things where people reenact different crafts and things. And there was a man doing woodwork with the old tools, making some things, a wonderful guy. We engaged him in conversation. But my wife and I looked at each other when we came to this fellow. He was the dead ringer of the actor James Garner. I'm sure he's been told this hundreds of We said it to him. He said, oh, yeah, yeah, I know that. He was a handsome man, jet black hair, you know, square chin. Boy, he was a handsome guy. Now, that was not Jesus. We don't have any reason to suppose that Jesus stood out for his appearance. In fact, he blended in. The prophet said he would. He had no special beauty or majesty about him that people would acclaim him for that. 
So here was something new. And we would believe as we understand what was happening here that it wasn't as though great floodlights were shined on him. You know, if you've ever been on TV, you you can't believe how bright those lights are. You can't see anything when they're shining in your face that, that you have on you so you look good on TV. It wasn't that. It was evidently an illumination more from within than from without. An otherworldly light that Matthew and Mark, as they describe the same scene, use the Greek term metamorphe, transformed by light. Now, where does this come from and what does this mean? We usually want to look to find out the meaning of New Testament things we don't understand in the Old Testament. And there is help for this in the Old Testament as there were a number of phenomenons of light that God gave. You think of the pillar of fire in the days of the Exodus that led Israel by night. You think of that wonderful light and presence. It wasn't just a visual thing. It was a felt thing when brightness of the glory of God was upon the tabernacle in the desert, the Shekinah. And Israel interpreted this, that God was there. They fell back in fear from it. And that same bright presence, how do we describe it? Who could describe it? Was there at the temple when the temple was dedicated. And we read of that, that the glory of the Lord filled the house dedicated to his true worship. Well, those perhaps are precedents of what we have here. And we might conclude that here in the Mount of Transfiguration, what God was doing and saying was now this brightness of his presence wasn't in a building, but in a person. And here it was in the essential glory of Jesus Christ himself. John was one of the three named who was there, and he wrote about it in the first chapter of the Gospel of John. You know the verse, we beheld his glory, John said. That's what he was talking about right here. We beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father. He had a visible glory that John saw that no other man ever had or could have. And wasn't that what Jesus was praying for? Not just the visible aspect of it, but the totality of it as the prayer that he prayed before the cross told about in John 17, 5 had him saying this, Father, glorify me now, as he went to the cross, with the glory I had with you before the world began. You see, in that historic hour, I believe the veil of the humanness of Christ The fleshly man who was real man was being pulled aside as if we could somehow be the peeping Toms who would be allowed to look in and see that which human eyes had not seen before, to be reminded that this Christ who said, I'm going to a cross where the Jerusalem establishment is going to tear me to pieces and kill me, was the glory of God visible on earth. Jesus, you see, was the Shekinah, the glory of God. There's so many promises that cluster around this. The promise that we Christians have that we will see God's face and glory in it. 1 John 3, 2, we shall be like him when we see him as he is. You see, that's what we've got here. Jesus as he is. 
Now, wondrously, and, and I could go in a whole discourse in another direction and tell you that we believe that Jesus will still bear the qualities of man in heaven. When hymn writers talk about seeing him in heaven with the wounds in his hands and feet, I believe that's right. He came as a man, and he is as a man today, and yet he is glorified because he is God. And also true are all those other verses like Philippians 2.6 that says he was in very nature God. Colossians 2.9 that says in Christ the fullness of the Godhead, the three-person God, dwells fully in him. You heard it in our word of assurance in the service this morning. Hebrews 1.3, the Son. These are wonderful words. The Son is the radiance of of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Look at the Son, and you don't have to ask, what is the Father like? For you're seeing him. The Bible teaches us that he, Christ, even in his humility, even before the cross as he headed there, is the King of glory. And he is what that eventual title that will apply to him, according to Revelation, one of the titles of Christ I love, possibly best. He is the bright morning star. What a tantalizing picture we have here in the transfiguration, that Jesus was going to a cross, and there was shame, and there was spitting, and there was thorns, and whips, and blood, and everything else involved. But beyond that, and and as he even went through that, here was the figure of glory, That glory would gleam again in his resurrection and his ascension. And it certainly gleams today as he reigns on high. We, Christians, will see it. Now, secondly, verses 30 to 31 tell us something more. I believe they say that Old Testament faith here is putting a benediction upon the cross. Two men appeared, Moses and Elijah, in splendor themselves of some type, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. I always wondered how in the world did Peter, James, and John know who those two men were. They'd never seen Moses and Elijah. There was no picture album of the greats, you know, of the history of Israel. You could say, oh, I know just what Moses looks like. No. No. Nobody had ever seen their faces. Moses was gone 1,500 years. Elijah, 900 years before this, had disappeared in a miraculous whirlwind into heaven. Who had seen them before? Somehow, God made their identities clear. And by the way, we think this is one of the indicators, just in a small way, that, that our personality, that our identity remains intact in eternity. And I would wander just for a moment to to give you a personal application here. It's not necessarily the thrust of the passage, but a side observation very worth noticing. As we all have Christians who go on ahead of us into glory, just this past week we had a funeral here for one of our members, dear man of God, Paul Weidman. Isn't it a great thing? to be reminded, as I think this passage tells us by analogy, that those who have gone ahead of us, who belong to the Lord, are not spectral ghosts. They're not sleeping somewhere in soul sleep. 
They, in fact, are personalities alive and intact as their souls live before God. They are safe in his keeping, and they remain active observers and even participants in his present and future plans. How exactly, we can't say. But the Scripture gives us enough indication that every soul that hopes in Christ is kept secure, is known by name, and belongs to him even as Moses and Elijah did. Well, it's not mysterious to us why these two men in particular appeared. Moses, of course, the great lawgiver. Elijah, the first of the thundering prophets. And often, you know, the Bible would speak of the Old Testament and simply say, the law and the prophets. You summarize the whole Old Testament when you say the law and the prophets. So if you want the Old Testament represented in two personalities, Moses and Elijah, you've got it. What then visually is it saying as these two representing the entire Old Testament revelation come and consult and inquire with eager interest and intently look and speak with Jesus about what he is about to do? Does it not tell us that everything about the Old Testament leads up to its fulfillment in Jesus Christ? And that these two were coming to subordinate themselves as the great leaders of Israel, what they would have remembered, the Jew would have remembered as our greatest men, greater than George Washington, you know, greater than Winston Churchill. These were the foundational figures. And here they were, consulting with Christ, looking keenly with interest at what Luke 19.31 says would be his departure. The word is actually his exodus. Isn't that interesting? Moses, who led the exodus that took 40 whole years because of the disobedience and the wandering and the straying minds and lives of the Israelites, you thought it would never reach its goal, but it did. Moses is now speaking with Jesus, who is taking on his exodus every believer, Jew and Gentile, past and future, who goes on his travel by way of the cross through the resurrection to the glory of heaven, to a place of liberation and freedom from the power and penalty of sin and death. Here's the Old Testament saying, Lord, you are the one for whom we have looked. You are the one in whom all things are to be accomplished. And then thirdly, I believe in our text, verses 32 to 43, we can add Christ to the glory of Christ revealed here in the Old Testament benediction. We add this, heaven's own endorsement of Christ's authority. You know, there are certain moments when things are so solemn and and so amazing that you should do best to just keep your mouth shut. Peter could never exactly do that, could he? His mouth was probably hanging open with what he saw, and and he thought, well, since it's open anyway, I might as well say something. And so he said, Master, I, I know you're the carpenter, but we could build three booths in a hurry here. We could preserve this moment in architecture. I'm wondering if it even went in far, as far in, in his imagination to think, Lord, we could bring the crowds by here and, and maybe charge and, and benefit many by giving to the poor with what they would give to see you and Moses and Elijah. What a tremendous vacation destination. 
Let us not leave here, Lord. Let us savor this with you. We want to linger near the glory. We don't want to go back to those clamoring crowds and their diseases and their demands and their demons. Well, it's interesting how the gospel reproves Peter with a parenthesis. He did not know what he was saying. No, he didn't. But he probably said about what we would have. And then follows this other amazing thing, the audible voice. Now, you should recognize this. If you've been with us through Luke, we emphasized it back in the earlier chapter when Jesus was baptized. The only other time when there is a voice that has no human source, it is left implied that this is a divine voice. They heard it with their ears. They knew not who it came from. A voice that said, This is my Son whom I have chosen. Listen to Him. The baptism and here are the two places where that happened. God speaks with great economy. Greater economy than any preacher you've ever listened to. I can tell you that. He doesn't waste words. When God speaks, he bids us to listen to his son speak. And then in verse 36, our text says, When the voice had spoken, they found Jesus alone. That's the NIV translation. The King James says they saw Jesus only. Charles Spurgeon, the great British preacher, had a wonderful sermon in which he waxed eloquent on those two words, Jesus only, because he saw those as the key that unlocked this whole passage, and I think he was quite right. Jesus left alone to do his task, understanding that he was real man who would suffer and die, understanding that he was real God with the power and resplendent glory of heaven. He alone, not Moses, not Elijah, would do this task. And so does Hebrews 1.1 say, in past ages God spoke to our forefathers, through the prophets in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Now, my summary lesson of this passage is that we would listen to Jesus speak intently, carefully, and observe what he says and seek to obey it. And you know, even Chatterbox Peter got that lesson. Not only did John write about this day and remember it in John chapter 1, Peter also wrote about it. It was so memorable. Second Peter chapter 1. Here's what Peter as an old man said. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received glory and honor from God the Father when the voice came from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love. Peter said, we ourselves heard that voice when we were with him on the holy mountain. He never forgot that day. And we are asked, although we were not there, we are asked never to forget it either. The question comes, are we listening for the voice of Christ? Are we intently saying, if God shall speak in the voice of his Son, I will certainly hear that, I will respond, and I will obey, and I will believe. You know, I stopped to think, In this age of digital communications, how many, many, many voices we all have coming at us 
from every direction. Voices literally yammering. I love that word. That's what they do. They yammer, which means they're talking, but much of what they're saying isn't really of any importance. I was at dinner with my daughter's family and my 11-year-old granddaughter. She's not allowed to answer the cell phone during dinner. Good rule, parents, by the way. But the cell phone was across the room, and it was going, the whole meal. I thought, who can have that much to say to an 11-year-old? Mine doesn't go off that often, but there are the messages, the voices. Listen to me, hear me, answer me. The Word of God is saying, peerless among every voice you might hear in our day is the voice of what the Son of the Highest has to say. He came to tell you how to escape the doom of hell and to see the green valleys of paradise. And the Scripture says, see that you do not refuse him who speaks from heaven. Today, if you hear His voice calling you to trust Him, fall down before Him, listen, obey, and follow. Do not harden your heart. I read ahead in this passage. You might have wondered why. I I got past the Mount of Transfiguration. You said, wait a minute, Pastor, why did you read that other part? Well, I wanted you to see a glimpse of what was beyond Luke 9.37. Because I believe is no accident at all that they came off that mountain with the glory being so bright that, that Peter was saying, oh, let's just stay here where the glory is. Where did they go? Down into a valley of the most ugly kind of degradation you could imagine. A demon-possessed boy shrieking, crying out. A demon trying to deface, vandalize the image of God in this boy. And you say, why are those two things placed together? For a very deliberate reason. The reason I believe Jesus was impatient and gave a rebuke to his disciples at that exorcism was because he was saying, can you not see the relationship between what you've heard as a confession that I am the Christ, that I will go to a cross, that I have the glory of God upon me, And that now we bring that glory down off that mountain into the brokenness and despair and wails of hurting people. The mountaintop is for worship, but the valley is for ministry. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, The same God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to bring the light of the knowledge of the glory of God to us in the face of Christ. Christian, that isn't something that happened to Peter and James and John. That's happened to you if you know Christ. And there's a real sense in which you can say, I have been to the mountaintop. I know his destiny in the cross, but I know also the magnificence of his glory, and I carry it with me in my life. And so then 2 Corinthians 3.18 concludes the matter for me today. Paul wrote, We who with unveiled faces reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory ourselves, which comes from the Lord. You see, the glory of Christ transfigures His people. It changes, it metamorphosizes those who trust in Him. And when once you have bowed to Christ as Lord, Christ 
the crucified one, Christ the risen one, Christ the ascended one, Christ the reigning one, then, my friends, you have a message to carry down off the mountain of worship into the valleys where people are broken and the demons are screaming and they will hear and see and be changed as God wills by the Christ they see in you. May it be true. Our Father, we ask today that we not lose this wonderful vision. You gave it to three to see and hold and tell of. You've given us to see the glory of Jesus as you've communicated his salvation to us by the Holy Spirit. We go from here today, and some of us go to very broken, bitter, terrifying places in our lives. We pray, O God, we carry with us the power, the word, the assurance, the performance guarantees, the salvation guarantees of Jesus, whom you yourself certified as your spokesman. May the world see what we have seen. For Jesus' sake, amen.